I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Bonnie Quinn. This week... The younger forces in Taiwan, the sub-40 generation, they are very, very willing to take up arms. They really want to. They're gunning to. Tim Culpin on whether Taiwan would be willing and able to defend itself should it be necessary. Later, we'll speak with Admiral James DeVridis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO on NATO expansion. First, though... The strengthening dollar raises the specter of what I call little fires everywhere. Because if you're in a developing country right now, the last thing you need is a disorderly depreciation of your currency against the dollar at a time when energy prices are higher, food prices are higher, and the global economy is slowing down. That's Mohamed El Arian on the dangerous ripple effects of a strengthening U.S. dollar. I spoke with Marcus Ashworth. Marcus, we're seeing a little bit of a pause now, but since the start of the year, the broad dollar index has appreciated around 7%, 14% year over year. We heard the Mohammed El Aryan bite. Are we looking at bigger fragilities to come? Uh, well, it's unusual to see emerging markets joined by a lot of the very large developed markets in, in all at the same time facing a very unpleasant circumstances with very weak currencies. Accelerating their need to have to raise interest rates not only to combat inflation but support their currencies. And because, unfortunately, this time around, because it's all imported energy inflation, they really don't want a weak currency. Even if they're export-led, like, say, Japan or the European Union are, this compounds itself with a weaker currency. So it's all about the strong dollar because the Fed is raising rates so much more aggressively. Um, and then there's the added value of that reserve haven um, currency of, of the dollar. So all the sort of everything at once, a perfect storm. Um, except perhaps we see the dollar um, having a bit of a breather at last. (laughs) Well, where should we look for fragilities? Because right now it seems like there is social, geopolitical instability in so many places. I'm thinking of places like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, but obviously other places around the world as well, even China. Yeah, well, I'm thinking London. I'm a bit worried about the UK. (laughs) So, yes, there is a lot of other problems around the world, and I certainly think that encourages people to rush into dollars particularly now they can get some yield as the bond markets have uh, voted clear with their feet. We have yet to see a food crisis, but it's clearly coming, which will put a lot of pressures, particularly on places like Egypt and North Africa. But it will spill over into a lot of other emerging markets. We're seeing clearly Turkey under pressure again the last few days. They're all bubbling away, and the stresses and strains of the system are exacerbated by the strength of the dollar. And buttons are starting to pop off the super aggressive Fed, also withdrawing liquidity. Mm. And the one thing which has kept the world survived through the pandemic and growth crisis is that liquidity of super amounts of dollars. Right. And how much of the responsibility is on the Fed? Because obviously it has to look after its own economy and there's huge inflation relative to what we're used to here in the United States. So the Fed has to worry about that. But at the same time, Janet Yellen used to always talk about feedback loops. So if there are problems in other countries in the world, that's going to eventually feed back to the United States as well. 
Yeah, it's just going to be a second-order effect, uh, or possibly even more than that, until the U.S. economy starts to feel weakness because its exports are falling away or there is a complete drop-off demand. Only then will we see perhaps be used as a bit of an excuse by the Fed. For the moment, there seems to be very little pressure on them internally to think of the rest of the world. I do think that having Yellen in the Treasury is important. Perhaps you could argue it's too close for comfort since she's just stepped away from the Fed, but... Equally, it can be very useful because she knows everyone. They all talk to each other. There's no doubt about it that the Bank of England takes a very careful look at what the Fed does and likewise the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan. So I'm sure they'll they'll be getting the incoming. Uh, Please stop hiking rates so quickly. But whether they listen or not, as you quite rightly summarised, I don't think they can at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And then can we count on the rest of the world to progress with things like structural reforms that might actually help their economies? That's going to be difficult for them, too, if they can't even service their external debt, right? I think that's wishful thinking on on lots of different ways. I mean, yes, some of them will have to, not necessarily the time frame they want to do it in, but some of them will absolutely have to do some more aggressive. uh, And they already are, to be fair, but it's a dilemma for everyone to be able to try and keep inflation down and avoid recession. Marcus, you sound a little less worried than somebody like Mohamed El Aryan. I don't want to overcharacterize what he's doing, but is he maybe exaggerating a little bit? Yes, I think there's a lot of problems in the world, and I'm not sure they're going to get better any any time soon. But there are certain things which, you know, if you look at the underlying strengths in the labour market and economies in Europe, US, and the UK in particular, they're pretty strong. China is able to do an awful lot of things of which other economies can't because they have so much control. You know, the, the world is going to suffer a correction because it's overstimulated, left that stimulus in too long, and it's got a horrible hangover, should we call it, combined with some logistic situations, chuck in a war. But we will get through this, and I do think the dollar strength is overdone, and it will probably carry on for a bit longer. But, you know, the point is, is it's there for a reason until the world gets a better place, the dollar's going to stay the place to be. The Treasury is now talking a lot about friend-shoring, so confining global supply chains to friendly networks. We don't quite know who these friends are yet, but it must be pretty difficult for partners or people who thought they were partners to hear this. Many of them are not democracies. Are we headed towards a system where many other countries are locked out of the US dollar system and don't have enough reserves to pay for what they need to import? Well, we know who friends are because they're the ones who got currency swaps through the pandemic and before that, the global financial crisis. Yes, it is a weapon. Do they use it cleverly? Absolutely. Do I applaud what they're doing? Yes, I do, actually. I think this is the leverage they have. And if you're without the dollar system, then that's a conscious decision. And as far as I can say, the US Treasury, particularly the OFAC, of handling things in a, in a very smart way. And, and they are understanding what they're doing with Russia. They're not being completely blanketly banning everything. They've done it in a very sophisticated and clever way. I think it's a wonderful tool. Marcus Ashworth. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. President Biden this week. Well, gaff or no gaff, Taiwan's democracy is facing a hostile China and a policy of strategic ambiguity on whether U.S. forces would defend Taiwan against China in the event of an invasion. Tim Culpin lives in Taipei. I asked him how Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent global response might have changed China's calculus on Taiwan, if at all. Yeah, this saber-rattling has been going on for 20 years. I've lived in Taiwan half my life. 
it's something that's always been persistent. It's had peaks and troughs back in the early 2000s when a more pro-Taiwan independence president came in and he was in for eight years. There was definitely a lot more of it. Then we had a president for eight years who was a bit more sympathetic to Beijing and so things died down. Now we have a president again who's much more kind of democratically focused, leans towards a Taiwan-centric view of Taiwan. So again, it raises again. But we also have a much more confident China, especially under Xi Jinping, who's really pushing the agenda a lot more. So we now see this push towards basically making the world understand Beijing's view of Taiwan and the China-Taiwan relationship. And I think the thing that I believe a lot of people might be mistaking is that there is heightened tension versus a higher cadence of statements from Beijing. So Beijing will take pretty much any opportunity to press its point on Taiwan, that being that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China. Um, you know, factually speaking, whether or not you believe that, you know, the PRC under the CCP has never actually ruled Taiwan. And the ROC, which was kind of defeated and kicked out of mm. mainland China, now sits in Taiwan. Um, but there's definitely that viewpoint from Beijing that Taiwan should be part of the PRC. And, and of course, in Taiwan, the view is very much the opposite. But what we're really seeing in the last few years is weekly press conferences from the foreign ministry. And China also has a Taiwan Affairs Office, which deals specifically with Taiwan issues. They will always keep pressing the point. And then, of course, whenever uh, U.S. officials talk to Chinese officials, they'll keep reminding them, hey, you know, don't make the mistake of supporting Taiwan independence. You know, you need to be reminded that Taiwan is ours. You'd be making a grave mistake, you know, helping Taiwan independence forces. So there is definitely an increase in tension. But I think the thing that we're seeing a lot is also just an increase in the cadence at which Beijing will remind the world of its worldview and its view on Taiwan. And it's important not to conflate the two, although both definitely exist. Will China actually do anything concrete about making what it perceives as its ownership of Taiwan any more practical? Will the Taiwanese army have to defend Taiwan's democracy? That is such a difficult question. You've got the CIA trying to work that out. You've got, uh, you've got uh, US, uh, uh, UK, Australian, uh, Japanese intelligence agencies and, and defense forces trying to work that out. I don't think so. Um, you know, I might be wrong. I hope, I hope I'm not wrong. I don't think that we will see China try to invade Taiwan. I think the most likely scenario might be maybe more akin to what Russia did with parts of Ukraine, such as Crimea or even Donbass regions, they might try to take an outlying island. Taiwan is not just one island. There's multiple islands. There's the main island of Taiwan, but there's some outlying islands, Penghu, which is kind of close to Taiwan. There's another island of Jinmen, which is very, very close to China. It's like one mile off the coast of China. There's a couple of smaller islands. There's also some basically deserted islands, which a couple of countries claim, Japan, and uh, Taiwan and China and a few others claim a, a set of islands kind of in the South China Sea, it wouldn't be surprising if China tries to take one of those islands just to kind of show that they can. And that might be enough to kind of rattle the cage of the Americans and the Japanese and other allies and like-minded nations of Taiwan. But a full-on invasion of Taiwan, I think, is unlikely 
but we shouldn't necessarily think of Beijing's leadership as acting rationally any more than we think of Vladimir Putin as acting rationally in trying to take Ukraine. Well, rationalism doesn't play into it. It's more nationalism. And there's the question of capabilities as well. I mean, it would have to be a sea war. Taiwan has an army, but how prepared is it? What kind of tactics have they been learning? Is there the willingness in Taiwan among the electorate to have Taiwan go to war with China if it came to that? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things that I think the world needs to understand is Taiwan doesn't want a war. Mm. Uh, Taiwan has not been bracing for war or preparing for war. It is the case that China has over a thousand missiles pointed at Taiwan. Taiwan does not have the reverse. So it would be Taiwan as the defender, as Ukraine is the defender against Russia. There is a lot of debate both within Taiwan and globally about whether or not Taiwan's doing enough, whether or not they take it seriously enough. I think Ukraine definitely solidifies in Taiwanese people's minds that it is a real possibility. There is much stronger moves towards civil defense. Now, Washington, including Pentagon State and White House, have criticized Taiwan for not taking it seriously enough, for not spending enough money, for not spending the right kind of money. And that is a valid criticism. I think it could definitely be said that Taiwan has probably not been doing enough. But there is a problem within Taiwan. It's a domestic political problem. And that is that the older generations in Taiwan who think of themselves as more Chinese are really not as keen to defend a independent Taiwan as they might be seen as defending the Republic of China, which you know it technically is the name of Taiwan. The younger forces in Taiwan, the younger electorate, the sub-40 generation, and even the sub-30 generation, including a group of of people I call the sunflower generation because uh, they helped defend Taiwan's democracy by storming the legislature many years ago, they are very, very willing to take up arms. They, They really want to. They're gunning to. I have people come to me constantly messaging me and talking to me saying, hey, we want to learn how to use weapons. We want to go into the jungle and, and learn how to fire rifles and learn combat training and stuff wow. like that. They're really, really looking at Ukraine and going, we want to be like that. We really respect what Ukraine is doing. We want to learn that. But that is the under 40 generation. The over 40 generation is probably less keen to take up arms. And so Taiwan, I think, is is a little bit of a divided country in that respect. And I think that what we'll see going forward is that time is not on Beijing's side in terms of the Taiwanese people seeing their self-identity and willing to learn civil defense and taking up their own arms and defending against any possible invasion. Tim Culpin there. Don't forget to get in touch. All thoughts and opinions very welcome. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. And Bloomberg Opinion is also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Admiral James Stavridis is a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO's Allied Command Operations. His new book has just hit bookstores. It's called To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. In it, he analyzes how to make good decisions in moments of intense crisis. Admiral Stavridis, I want to talk about NATO expansion and the war in Ukraine, obviously. But first, the book. I have to ask why nine decisions. Is it a reference to Dante and his nine circles of hell? Um, You know, that was very much in my mind and the idea that we have found ourselves, I think, in this kind of dark forest, as Dante did before he was escorted, if you will, into the inferno. But we ought to remember the optimism of uh, of Dante's uh, divine comedy, which is that eventually we escape the inferno, we get to purgatory and we get to paradise. 
it's an extraordinarily optimistic framework for somebody who's been through so much. Explain to us how you picked these nine particular battle decisions. Well, first and foremost, of course, I'm a sailor. I'm a naval officer. And so, you know, write about what you actually know about. So I, I picked nine different sailors from history. And, Bonnie, you'll know also that another subtle reference here is the Caddo Nine Tales, which mm-hmm. is applied to sailors when they uh, misbehave. And so um, in the course of these nine decisions, you see some that come out very well and some that come out very badly. Um, it would have been easy to pick, you know, nine spectacular decisions. I think more realistically, you want a book that helps a reader understand what are the tools that he or she needs to make decisions under extreme pressure using the examples in the book. One of the conclusions that's applicable to everyday civilian life, and in fact is probably the conclusion, it's the only thing that matters, is to slow time down when you're in a moment like that. Mm -hmm. How do you get to that spot where you can do that? You First and foremost, you you study others, you look at history, you try and understand how people can make those decisions. Uh, Number two, you practice. And what I mean by that is deliberately place yourself mentally in a situation of extreme crisis and walk your way through it. And um, that is the kind of training that Navy SEALs do all the time before they go off. And the more you practice, the more you consciously think about what it would be like to be in that moment of crisis, um, the more prepared you'll be when that when that moment does come. Admiral, watching Russia's war in Ukraine over the last three months now, and you know it's obviously going to go on for longer, what are the decisions that you have noticed that possibly the rest of us haven't seen? The small decisions, the medium decisions, the large decisions that have been made by everyday soldiers on the battlefield that you think are extraordinary? I'm going to start on the Russian side of the coin, Bonnie, and and say that here we've seen terrible decisions, decisions that have led uh, to war crimes. And and I think that's really what's most striking to me um, is how the Russian mid-grade officers, their generals, all the way up to, to Vladimir Putin have allowed their troops to simply indiscriminately attack civilians, to rape, to loot. Um, these are armies you would expect, behaviors you would expect from an army in the ninth century. Um, this is a, a series of terrible decisions, and uh, there is no excuse for it. On the other hand, on the Ukrainian side, you see uh, soldiers every day making very brave decisions in moments when they, as the title of the book is, to risk it all, when they are forced to risk it all. They're making the right decisions. Look at those um, Ukrainian Marines who held out in the city of Mariupol for months um, and their bravery, their courage. Um, You see a mirror image, one mirror dark and the other full of light. Admiral, what does it mean for someone like you who has been through so much training and so much effort, so much practice, so much studying of past battles and past wars to see ports in Ukraine and even on the Russian side being completely blockaded and essentially becoming useless to the world. I mean, that must be that must provoke a very emotional reaction, even in somebody as trained as you. It does indeed. And, um, you know, we've faced this in history before. You may recall 
um, in the 1980s, um, both the Iranians and at one point the Iraqis, particularly the Iranians, tried to close off the Strait of Hormuz uh, from the shipment of oil tankers. And what did the West do? We started escorting those tankers in and out of the Arabian Gulf. I did that as a young officer on board uh, a cruiser, USS Valley Forge. And so I think it's time that the West looks at this. Again, this is uh, war criminal behavior. You can't simply blockade ports. This is not appropriate under international law. And it's cutting off desperately needed grain supplies that's going to lead to further instability. I think it's time to consider uh, humanitarian escorts in and out to keep the Ukrainian economy functioning and to get Ukraine's grain to the world's markets. We're with Admiral James Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO's Allied Command Operations. His new book has literally just hit the shelves. It's called To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision. He analyzes what goes into making great decisions and maybe not so good decisions in moments of intense crisis. Want to turn our attention now to NATO and the question of expansion. Admiral, there's broad and bipartisan support in the US for Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Turkey obviously blocking it. Does Turkey have good arguments to make? No, they don't. And let's start with the qualities of these two nations, uh, Sweden and Finland. I've commanded their troops in combat. Uh, they, they deployed alongside NATO troops in Afghanistan. They operated in the war over Libya. They were part of our efforts, NATO efforts in the Balkans. I know the quality of these troops very, very well. Um, they are brave, professional, highly trained, and technologically advanced. The Swedish Gripen fighter, for example, is among the very best in the world. I guess if you can build a a good Volvo sports car, you can build a fighter pilot plane as well. So um, they bring real military quality. Second, they have um, a history of fierce independence. The Finns, of course, fought the Soviets to a standstill in the 1939 Winter War. Um, And then that That ethos, I think, will be a benefit to NATO. And third and finally, Bonnie, geographically, this gives us a a northern flank in the alliance and and more um, more landscape, if you will, in the high north, in the Arctic. Both Sweden and Finland are Arctic nations. So uh, there there is every reason to bring them into the alliance. Turkey, on the other hand, has a series of bilateral um, annoyances, I would categorize them as, between Mm -hmm. They feel themselves in those two nations. It's not appropriate to hold up the, uh, th- these applications. I don't think uh, Turkey will continue to do so. Well, it's a pretty bold step on the part of both Finland and Sweden to want to join yep. NATO in the first place. But it does seem like a pretty broad accusation to suggest that those countries are places where, quote, representatives of terrorist organizations are concentrated. How strong of an argument at all is this on the part of Turkey? I don't see it as a strong argument in the least, and and Turkey has deployed that uh, argument toward other NATO countries. Um, The the Turks often say that uh, one of the leaders of the Gulen movement, he happens to live in Pennsylvania Mm. in the United States, and they want him extradited. But they've not given us any reason to extradite him, and um, neither have they given the Swedes or the Finns uh, the appropriate documentation that, that would lead to an extradition. Um, it, it's more annoyance than anything else, and I think Turkey is is in the wrong place on this one. 
You know, Turkey, Admiral, has suggested that it might consider leaving the alliance if it's forced to accept Sweden and Finland. Would it follow through? I highly doubt it. Um, I, I have spent a lot of time in Turkey. My grandparents, by the way, were born in Turkey in uh, what is today Izmir. They were born in the city of Smyrna. And as Greeks, they were invited to leave, shall we say, in the 1920s. Mm. Um, so I know Turkey quite well. Um, and I will very quickly say Turkey has been a very positive force in the alliance. They've deployed on every mission we've asked them to come on, and they've done extremely well militarily. I think they take pride, they, the Turkish nation, take pride in being part of NATO, and I don't think they will simply walk away from the alliance. What would NATO be if Turkey, one of the founding members, we should say, left? Um, actually, Turkey and Greece came in in the first tranche of additional members, so they're not true founding members, but your point's extremely well taken. Um, I think the NATO alliance would continue on and would continue to be very strong, but of course it would be diminished by the departure of any of the nations. Today we have 30 nations in NATO. Uh, many have joined and none have left. Mm -hmm. Let's hope Turkey does not uh, begin that pattern. I think it would be bad for Turkey and bad for the alliance. I mean, it's a real matrix of relationships, as you said, on Turkey's part. It does have to navigate some kind of relationship with Russia still, presumably. Could it safely leave Vladimir Putin's orbit, even though Russia is a trading partner and ally and it needs Russia for food and energy imports in particular? I think they can, and I think they should. And um, the rest of the alliance would be very happy to be helpful to Turkey in that nexus of relationships. And let's face it, many nations are, are going to have to make some tough decisions in the days ahead about their relationship with Vladimir Putin's Russia. And I say that specifically, Vladimir Putin's Russia. Mm. The wheel of time will turn. And at some point in the future, Russia may well be welcomed back. But for the moment, um, we all need to adjust our relationships. I'll close with this. Uh, people talk these days a lot about the, the great resignation or uh, the next great recession. I think what we're going to see, Vonnie, is a great rewiring. You're going to see energy, fuel, food, agrarian products. These are going to be rewired uh, away from Russia in a way that will diminish them ultimately. Admiral, we're getting slightly into details here, but there is a question of an arms deal and a refund that Turkey is looking for of $1.4 billion. It was a deposit for an F-35 order. What happens with that? Is it fair for the U.S. to hold on to that? Does Turkey have a point? I think uh, on that one, Turkey very much has a point. And again, uh, all of this fell out of the Turkish decision to purchase the S-400 uh, weapon system, since he said he wanted to go into detail, a very high-end uh, air defense system. And that is what led to their uh, expulsion, not too strong a word, from the uh, Joint Strike Fighter program. Um, but we need to, even as we follow all of those political paths, we need to be fair to a NATO partner and ally. And I think this is one where 
we can negotiate satisfactorily with Turkey. And I suspect the U.S. and Turkey will do so. Mm. Admiral, a quick word, if I may, on Taiwan. We obviously had the president answering a question about defending Taiwan this week that wasn't received well in Beijing. With our experience now regarding Ukraine, has the tactical thinking on Taiwan changed at all? Is defense something that could be done by proxy or with sanctions, as it has been for the most part with Ukraine? I think that that is precisely what the administration is doing. And um, I don't think it's a gaffe or a coincidence or a misspeaking on the part of the president. I think that he is signaling that this administration is going to lean further forward. That means a weapon systems that will be more useful in defense of the island of Taiwan. It means a more engagement diplomatically with the island of Taiwan. It means Um, enhancing economic relationships and doing so in a timely manner before we land in crisis. So it's not an all-out, hey, we're going to uh, defend them as we would a NATO ally. That's not what the president is trying to signal. But I believe he's signaling a forward-leaning posture that would prepare and help the Taiwanese so that they can, like the Ukrainians, be in a position to make the decision about their own future. If China were to do something soon, one of the possibilities that one of our other columnists, Tim Culpin, has suggested is that it could take an outlying island. It could take one of the islands just a mile or two off the China coast. As a non-civilian, what would your prognostication be? I think it's unlikely that President Xi would even take, let's say, Kimoi or Matsu, one of these islands that are very close to the Chinese coast. They don't really gain much by doing that, and they create a lot of instability, a lot of discussion I think President Xi would rather not have as he heads into the the big party Congress this fall where he hopes to be and probably will be elected uh, for a third five-year term as the leader of China. I think we're in for a year of living quietly with China as this year unfolds. Admiral James Stavridis. And once again, the Admiral's book, To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts and the Crucible of Decision, is just out in bookstores and online. We're now choosing to end all conversations. Not with you, though. Please do get in touch. I'm at Bonnie Quinn on Twitter or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Bloomberg Opinion is also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.